0: Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, friends. I'm Kim Skarubsky here at Hopkins, looking at two of my lovely colleagues, Dr. Sarah Poynton and Miss Rachel Walden. Dr. Sarah Poynton is an associate professor in the Department of Molecular and Comparative Pathobiology. She's a parasitologist. And maybe if we have time, she'll tell you about the huge tome that she is assembling as an editor with 65 authors in 25 different countries. That's going to be fabulous. And Ms. Rachel Walden has an MS, Master of Science degree, and an ELS degree, which means Editor in the Life Sciences. Rachel is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and the Director of Editorial Services in that department. We're going to be talking today about writing The fundamentals of writing, the writing resources we have here at Hopkins. And if I'm gonna be like these YouTubers, if you stay away, if you stay with us to the very end, you're gonna get a free gift that Rachel is gonna tell you about. But let me tell you how I I first met Sarah Poynton, Dr. Poynton, almost 10 years ago when I first came to Hopkins and learned about her fascinating career, not only as a parasitologist, but learned that she is an expert in writing and not only has expertise in language and and communicating narrative and story, but is also a great teacher. And I'm gonna start, um, I'll let Sarah tell you how she and I first started working together to offer writing resources to our faculty here at Hopkins, and then how she met Rachel and how the we have now kind of um, filled our bucket up with some more innovative writing curricula here at Hopkins. Take it away, Sarah.
1: Okay, thank you. Well, I've had a passion for writing from, well, as long as I can remember, I come from a family that have loved writing and greatly valued the written word. Um, So, when I met Kim and she was sharing with me a lot of her ideas for the Office of Faculty Development here at Hopkins, we did a lot of brainstorming and I'd shared with her how interested I was in writing and I was at that time teaching a two-term advanced course in biomedical writing. Um, for a particular group um, here at Hopkins, and we realized we could easily share that much more broadly. So uh, we began with um, some classes in scientific writing uh, and realized that this can sort of grow exponentially because you have to think about, are you just writing research papers? Are you writing editorials? Are you doing opinion pieces? And then, of course, there's all the very important grant writing, which is related, but has some different aspects to it as well. Um, And so we began um, offering courses. And then one day I had a very transformational email. And, you know, we all get our email boxes full. And sometimes there are gems in there and sometimes there's just garbage. But I had an email from this colleague Rachel, who I didn't know, but she said that she had heard about me and she was doing editing and she thought maybe we would have some things um, in common. So she came to my office uh, the first time and it actually felt as if I'd known her forever. Um, Rachel brings to this a uh, very different perspective as you'll hear from her in a moment. Um, she is trained from the point of view of languages where and then applies that to clinical and life science things, whereas I come to this from a scientific research background and then add the love of words. Um, So Rachel and I have been doing a lot of uh, team teaching and um, she brings some wonderful perspectives. So I'll invite her now to tell you a little bit about what she brings to the writing support uh, that we offer here at Hopkins for our faculty. Thanks, Sarah.
2: Thanks, Kim. Um, yeah, I did send that email just on a whim when I saw that Sarah was teaching biomedical writing at Hopkins, and I thought, wow, how is it that we've never met? I've been here for about eight years, um, and so we got in touch and, and realized that our strengths, our backgrounds, are complementary in this uh, teaching endeavor that we do. Um, as Sarah described, mine coming from a words background and and with much less familiarity with the the content often that I that I edit, um, and so that brings of um uh, you know an outsider's perspective a bit um, and helps uh authors understand what might need to be clarified when you're writing to uh, a big international audience, uh, an audience of, with varying degrees of familiarity uh with with the uh, field so uh so Sarah and I I think uh you know we love teaching it's a big passion of ours uh when I came to Hopkins, I started seeing some of the writing coming to me, some of the drafts of, uh, of manuscripts that were um, destined for peer review, and I realized that there was such unevenness in in experience and um, and training as far as how to write, uh, how to convey these often complex uh, findings and and very important findings uh, to to a diverse audience. And so I polled our residents in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and asked them how much writing, writing training they'd had or when was the last no formal writing training, and for many of them, it was English 101 undergrad. And here they were at Hopkins in an extremely prestigious fellowship, uh, destined to become clinician scientists, uh, and who would need to publish to advance their careers, to 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 obtain grants, and really had very little training um, in how to do that, and they seemed quite eager actually for, uh, for that kind of instruction Uh, their mentors have uh, their clinical mentors have different degrees of of ability and time available to, uh, to mentor them in writing. And so I started teaching a bit in our department, and then Sarah and I partnered to, to open up these um, uh, offerings to the faculty at Hopkins, uh, who are just an absolute delight to work with, I have to say. we They're very um, interactive, and they bring just a wealth of knowledge um, and enthusiasm to the endeavor. So we have a great time teaching. Um, and they come away with, you know, with skills with knowledge that uh, I don't think they would get anywhere else so that's our contribution I hope
0: (laughs) thank you Rachel Sarah may I just pause for a moment to underscore how you started off um, your introduction you said I saw something come across my email and I emailed her I emailed Sarah so to me that that pro being proactive and reaching out to someone has led to further opportunities creative, innovative products and projects with wonderful outcomes, truly, I'm sure, personally rewarding, as well as impacting future generations and leaving legacy. And I think the lesson I want to underscore again is that you took the initiative to reach out. You could very easily have over over the years, because you're already the director of editorial services and orthopedic surgery, continued on your your own career trajectory, doing um, what you're doing as an assistant professor, and and just said, oh, that's nice that that Dr. Pointon's doing that. How, how nice! And that little step, it takes courage because I have some faculty members, you know, who come to us and say, oh, I could never, you know, reach out to her. You know, what she obviously doesn't need me. She has this whole enterprise built. But the courage in doing that, knowing that the worst case scenario is Sarah would say, no, thank you very much or delete the email. But you don't know until you ask. And so I just want to underscore for um, everyone listening that it's just these little moments where you see an opportunity or something that delights you or surprises you or intrigues you. Simply reach out. And again, what's the worst The worst thing that can happen? And here's an example of something good that comes out that started as a, I think Ray, uh, Sarah did a, it was a 12 week, maybe biomedical and scientific writing course. And then we did boot camps and then one days and then half days and all these iterations over the decade that now you've both worked together and come up with um, something even more interesting that you'll, you'll tell us about uh, going forward. And um, so why, why don't you, in addition to, I think I wanted to help the, the, Folks who are listening to this podcast are typically, you know, they're the broad range of faculty members around the world and leaders, people who run departments and divisions and deans and schools. Can you kind of describe that portfolio, first of all, of programs and resources to give us a sense of what we do here at Hopkins? And then maybe pivot to some like top three recommendations you might give to individual people, those of us who maybe don't have the confidence in our writing and some nuggets we can take home to uh, improve our our scholarship.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Thank you. Well, in preparing for this podcast, Rachel and I had actually touched base with each other this morning. Um, So absolutely, yes. Uh, Let's now share for you some of what our offerings are. Um, I'll describe the the um, scholarly writing classes, and Rachel is going to describe the uh, offerings that we do for serving as a writing coach. Um, so we have a very, very wide range of um, offerings that that we provide for our faculty here. Um, so i describe those for you um two to three times a year. We offer a suite of four half-day sessions, uh, which um, during COVID, of course, we did them remotely. We continue to do them remotely. Um, And during these four half-day sessions, uh, we cover the fundamentals of scholarly writing. So we begin with thinking about what is our intent? And many people don't think about that. They just jump into, oh, my goodness, I've got to put, you know, these axes on this graph and I've got to include this information. But Rachel and I step back and invite people to think about what is your intent? And of course, sometimes the intent is simply to get the paper off your desk. But beyond that is the intent to inspire and inform your reader, So, during that suite of four half-day sessions, uh, we cover the fundamentals of effective scholarly writing, um, including the importance of narrative style, telling a story, um, thinking about our primary and secondary audience. This all speaks to uh, the the intent. Um, And we then go through the different parts of a paper. And so, we consider, for example, how do you write a really effective, effective title? Because often the title is really neglected, but it's so critical. How do you compose an effective abstract? And then we go through and we look at the elements of compelling introduction, some different strategies for organizing an introduction, um, materials and methods, usually the easiest part to write, but nonetheless, there's opportunities to make it even better. Um, Of course, we talk about results and we talk about discussion um you know what do we do to make the discussion really compelling um so we do that i see usually two to three times a year for half day sessions um we also offer a two-day writing clinic And when I say clinic, it has some similar elements to the way patients or a pet will present when they go to get treatment. You know, you have a problem, you have to look at it, you have to do the diagnosis, you have to come up with a treatment plan. Um, So during the two-day writing clinic, which is typically restricted just to six individuals, um, they submit their manuscripts to us two weeks ahead of the clinic. So Rachel and I will review the manuscripts in detail provide line-by-line edits for content, style, and form, um, and do individual tutorials. There's lots of exercises. Um, And the hope is that this will not only encourage our faculty to get their manuscripts um, submitted and hopefully only go through one round of reviews, but this will actually give them sustained improvement in their writing skills. So that's what we do for the basic um, scholarly writing part. And I'll hand you over now to Rachel, who will tell you what we offer by way of writing coaching, since many of our faculty are having to um, serve as writing coaches as well. Thanks, Sarah.
2: Yeah, writing coaching, I I think most people do not necessarily think of themselves or embrace that role as writing coach, but they are de facto writing coaches when uh trainees come through and uh and and draft manuscripts and the manuscripts need a lot of work and uh, you know there are different approaches you can take uh, to to a manuscript. You can just fix it you that is do the work yourself just revise it rewrite it um and and perhaps your trainee will learn something if they take a look at how you revised it uh but that's really not the ideal re- approach and it and it can take an awful lot of time and you might as well just do it yourself because it can you know sort of just be easier to start with a clean slate right um then there's you know, editing in which you're, 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 you're fixing things and you're going back and forth with the author, um, to, to, but you still, it's not really teaching exactly, not directly, maybe indirectly teaching, but not directly. Um, and then you have writing coaching, um, and coaching truly is the teaching role, the mentoring, the support and guidance. And we, realized after some time of teaching these um these scholarly writing classes that many of our train or many of our uh, participants in those sessions were saying, can we pass these tools along to our our Chinese? can we use them? can you um is that okay? And of course we said, yes, yes, it's okay. it's great. Uh, you know do that. Then I thought, well, Using it yourself is a little bit different than teaching someone else how to, to use it. And I'm referring to our, our uh, writing coaches toolkit. Um, and this has a number of elements uh, in it uh, that uh, Sarah and I have developed to uh, make the the writing coaching process or your own writing process uh, more effective, more efficient. Um, they We try to break things down and be... Um, just a little bit more objective about what needs to be included and how different parts of the manuscript need to function. Um, and these tools help, help you do that and help you convey that they also help mentees understand what the expectations are before they ever start writing. Uh, so what does my discussion actually need to accomplish? Um, and, and there's fortunately that's, you know, somewhat prescriptive and, and, uh, we can, we can teach them that and then use these tools to evaluate it and help them evaluate it themselves. So, uh, so that's when, how we develop the, uh, the, the coaching uh, clinic and the coaching half day session and, uh, and they're just uh, re- enormously gratifying to teach because um it, it gives it, it, we're teaching the teachers mm-hmm. <laughs> in those sessions
0: <laughs> thank you for describing these these resources and again we're very fortunate to have you here um to create these and to look for opportunities another great thing that you you know as a scientist can do and someone who's in academic academic medicine or Academia, looking for opportunities. And that's another, you gave another great example, Rachel, of seeing a need, an unmet need, just by virtue of someone asking a question, right? Uh, Necessity is the mother of all invention. And so that question prompted you to develop something a little bit more formalized and structured. So I think it's, it's wonderful. It's incredibly important. And as you also mentioned, none of us really or few of us learn the skills of writing. And I remember when I was in graduate school, the way I did it was one of my favorite authors in my field, uh, Dr. Fred Walensky, a gerontologist. I love the way he wrote because it was very elegant, but simple. And very. I noticed that he had a pattern with the way he wrote a lot of his articles, that they were almost like it was, a, it was almost formulaic. Like I could tell that I knew he'd have this table one that would do this. I know he'd have table two that would show that. I knew he'd have the linear model showing that. And I I got to um, become familiar with and comfortable with and engaged in his writing. And I loved, it, it just really kind of felt good to me. And I would literally put his papers on my desk and try to mirror unabashedly I'd copy his style and that's the way I learned how to write was just by copying somebody else mm-hmm. and and you can under and we can certainly appreciate how many of us just first of all writing is hard anyway and to have the idea that get you at know, the start of getting off the starting block can be really intimidating so if you don't have the fundamentals or the confidence that you can convey an idea it can really cause a lot of, you know, just emotional turmoil. And how can I make it in academia? And I have all these great ideas, but if you can't communicate it, you're going to really struggle. So this is, to me, I have a hard time understanding how any institution would not support or endorse this expertise, this wisdom, these, this portfolio of programs and resources. It's just amazing, and. So first, I just want to thank you for doing it, because it's really had a a really big impact. I I will say something. I know Sarah's heard me say this for years and years and years, and she and I talked about it years ago. What are your thoughts on or what do you know about writing for non-native English speakers? Because we've gone around and around with this. It's challenging enough trying to offer these courses for people who were born speaking and writing English. But as we all know, our institutions are very diverse and many of our faculty members and trainees and students, English is not their native language. They have that additional, additional barrier of um, the, the literal technique of grammar. And uh, so how, what are your thoughts on the next evolution of writing or who is anyone in, in your space doing this for non-native English writers?
1: Well first of all th- thank you for bringing that up because I had actually made a little note here with an asterisk to discuss this um the first thing that that I think about is recognizing that if somebody is going to be writing in English and at the moment English is the international language for science and medicine although of course it was not always thus um I think it's an extraordinary undertaking. You know, and Rachel and I often say in class, you know, we really honour people doing doing this. Um, One of the other things that I keep in mind, and I always share when I'm in class about this, is that as a non-native English speaker, people may actually be bringing a great strength to their writing, particularly if they come from a culture that has a great history of poetry or storytelling. And I'm thinking in this case, for example, um, Iran. They have a wonderful history. And we think of the beautiful um, poetry by Rooney. And sometimes when people are from another country, another culture, another language, um, they're... Way of expressing themselves is often extremely effective and very beautiful. But often, you know, n- native English speakers, and let's face it, most scholarly writing is not particularly pleasurable to read. I mean, if I go around a group and say, What percentage of papers offer you a great experience as a reader? the answer is usually maybe 10% on average. <laughs> that many, um, so, yeah. Sometimes, so I like people to recognise that just because you're a native English speaker, it doesn't mean you are going to be a great scholarly writer. Definitely not. And just because you're not a native English speaker doesn't mean you will be bad at it. Hmm. In fact, thank I
0: remember going. You, to thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes. That, that's so important. I'm, I'm so. Thank yes. you. For sure.
1: Yes. Um, and I remember going to a talk some years ago, actually, which my PhD student, who was from Iran, began his presentation, and it was riveting. And I said to him, Why did you do it like that? He said, I thought what I would do if I was speaking in Farsi. And he would give this descriptive. And of course, and this plays back to the use of narrative style and storytelling. Um, and in terms of, who is addressing this particularly. Um, There is one textbook that Rachel and I do sometimes recommend, which is about scientific writing for non-native English speakers. Um, You know, so in in essence, I think, yes, there is sometimes more work to do, particularly with grammar. Um, People coming from some, let's just say, more conservative countries May need to have a little bit of extra help in writing a really robust introduction and discussion. Because in some countries and in our Western way of doing things, intro and discussion is really robust. We critique what's already in the literature. But for some other countries and cultures, that would be something pretty risky to do. Mm. So there's a lot more to it than fixing the vocabulary and grammar. Yeah. A lot of it is to do with intent um, and ways of thinking. But I have found sometimes my non-native English speakers do at least as well as the native speakers do and sometimes better. My sense, I suspect Rachel would have something to add to this too. Uh, just that, you know, writing is thinking, right? Writing is the product of thinking. And the
2: the nobody has a market on, you know, clear thinking, clarity of thinking. <laughs> God and 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 so I have found that some of the, the some of the clearest writing, although the grammar and syntax may be off at times and and may need some help, that's easy. you know, a good editor can do that and practically in their sleep. so um, it's, it, but the, the logic is there and the 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 structure is there, the thought process and, and the flow are there. And that's the hardest part, I think for you know for many writers to to get those pieces in. and I just find that our non-native speakers are are they excel at that.
0: I want to also pause here because, Rachel, you just said something that is, again, kind of riveted right through my brain. Writing is a product of thinking. And you're reminding me of when I first came here and started these uh, investigator groups. I called them the Briggs, the Criggs, and the Pre-Kiggs. The Briggs was the basic (laughs) research investigator groups. The Criggs were the clinical research investigator groups. And the Pre-Kiggs were the Pre-K investigator groups. And what we would do is we would gather And one person or two people would volunteer to review, to present their specific aims page of their grant application. And so so Rachel would show up that day and Sarah and I and a couple other people there and Rachel would hand out her one page copies of the specific aims and we would greet each other and then take a moment in silence to review Rachel's specific aims page. And we would read it, read it, and some of us would be taking notes, taking notes. And when I would kind of notice that people were done reading, we'd say, okay, you know, um, let's begin the conversation. And inevitably, the principal investigator would say, well, so Rachel, we Sarah would say, Rachel, what did you mean by, or I'm confused by, or, you know, I noticed that. And Rachel would start justifying and explaining, well, well, this and that, and this is why. And what I would always say, let's turn the specific page." Pages upside down. Rachel, would you just please tell us, tell us the story of where you came to be here, what it is you're trying to do, what's the future? And Rachel would start talking extemporaneously, and people around the room would all be going, "Yes, yes, yes, that's it, that's it, that's it." What you just said, write that down. And then Rachel would say, "Oh, I forgot what I just said." And then Sarah would say, "Oh, good for you. I just, I wrote it down. I wrote it verbatim. I'll text you or I'll email you when we're done." The the practice of storytelling with your mouth is we try to convey that that's reminding me of the the thinking the storytelling and instead we and what we tend to do as academics I think and you're the expert is that we tend to I think over intellectualize we think we are these academics and so we have to be very smart in our in our communication. And we don't recognize that the whole point, as you say, Sarah, the intention is to communicate. And if you want to communicate, why not tell the story and pull the reader in versus vomiting all these big words and see how smart I am. And don't you agree? I'm super smart. I'm super smart. Uh, We know you're smart, (laughs) you know.
2: Right. No, well said, Kim. I, and and I I can't tell you how many times I've had that experience where I, I read a paper, there seems to be a lot of sort of disagreement agreement between the objectives and then the way the methods are described and then how the results are presented and the discussion goes off in another direction. And I'm left thinking, what exactly was the point of this again? Can you remind me? And sometimes, the often, the easiest way of getting to that information is, as you say, a conversation. Something somehow gets lost between brain and keyboard. <laughs> I almost said pen. Um, no one does that. Um, and, and yet they authors are often really great at presenting and just orally describing, you know, what what it is they did, why they did it, why it matters? What are the clinical implications? Whether it's a clinical study or basic science research, what? Why are we doing this? If it's the life sciences, then it has something to do with you know promoting human health, um, public health. Uh, but what are the what are the implications, and how does that become woven into every part of the story so that a reader right away understands this work is important. Because if they don't understand that, if you don't convey that right at the beginning, from the title to the abstract in particular, if you don't convey why we did this, there was a good reason for this, it's filling a gap in knowledge that matters, um, then no one
0: has any incentive to read. I tend, and I'm going to personalize this, is I tend to see or think that we in our own heads know the story. We know the how the building blocks of my research agenda are stacking up. And I tend to have this, I guess, maybe obnoxious perspective, like, well, why do I need to talk about that in this paper? I already published that paper. Don't they know that? Like, how obnoxious is that for me (laughs) to think that there is a group of people out there who go, oh, I know why she said that, because... Three papers back, she mentioned it that one time. So I remembered that. Like, how ridiculous am I to think? So I, I think what I'm trying to get at is how often do you see is this a problem or a challenge, or is it just Kim Skarebsky, that <laughs> we that we don't um in telling the story, we make assumptions or maybe we jump without slow in the roll, backing up. And but then my mind goes, oh. Really? I have to start over again and tell them that for the umpteenth time? Yes, yeah. you do. It might <laughs> it might kind of make any sense and like would that challenge A lot of sense. It makes a lot of of sense,
2: and it's a common challenge. And to be fair, what an author is trying to do is is not easy because you're trying to, of course, communicate to your primary audience who are typically other specialists in your field, um, other experts, and they are going to have a high degree of familiarity with much of that background. Uh, And so you don't want to bore that that, uh, audience. And yet, you need to provide enough background and context for someone with less, uh, you know, less education, less familiarity in that field uh, to be able to follow along with what you're doing. It doesn't mean they need to understand all of the nuances and the nitty gritty science, especially in in really technical papers. But the language, the way it's expressed, should not be interfering with with that uh, comprehension, and it shouldn't be, um, you know, deterring them from reading the paper. I try to think it's been helpful for me because I have a daughter who's now just finished her first year at Tulane, and she's a neuroscience major, just declared. And I try to think about her reading papers, in, you know, neuroscience papers and scholarly journals, and how challenging that is. And I try to think, about what makes it challenging, familiarity with the science, the methods. Yes, that's part of it. And that's legit. And she has that yet to learn. The words themselves should not be the barrier. So when we huh. can express it more clearly, more elegantly, more straightforwardly, with simpler uh syntax and simpler words when they will do, when you know, not dumbing down the content, but but expressing mm-hmm. it um in a in in the most accessible way possible. Mm-hmm. And whether that's because you are you know, young and new to the field, or it's because you're not a native English speaker or whatever it is, we're, you know, we want to be able to reach
0: and tell our story to the widest possible audience. Now, is it, is this being too simplistic when I say I'm trying to kind of draw back on the metaphor of a story? Mm. Is this similar, this meaning my reticence or annoying my being annoyed with the idea that I have to like build the case and kind of ramp up in the introduction to what's been done already, where the gap is, why I'm doing it. That makes me kind of, because I'm impatient. I want to like get right to it. Is part of that launching into it and setting the stage similar to a movie or a book where all of a sudden the author introduces a character and you're like, wait a minute, (laughs) <laughs> Where's this character come from that? I don't understand the jump there. Last Monday, she was having lunch at the cafe with her friend. And now Joe, who's Joe, <laughs> where did this storyline come from? <laughs> I'm thinking that something like a reader, because you're, you know, you made me think Rachel, surely if Sarah and I are colleagues for 20 years and she knows sort of the body of my work, she'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. And she's, you know, track with me right away, but there may be new readers who have to be like, hold on a beat. Who's Joe? Why are we in the cafe? What's happening? Without dumbing it down, of a cafe is a place, but kind of like setting the stage, right? Is that is that too Absolutely. ridiculous? It's a great
2: analogy, and you know where those new characters, where Joe in the cafe comes in. He comes in in the discussion, and 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 we say, wait a minute, what? What? I couldn't have anticipated Joe having read the introduction, and that's a problem. You know, that's a, you're blindsiding readers, and and writers often go off on on tangents. They talk about things that are. Um, that are of interest to them and perhaps of interest to their colleagues, but not directly relevant to the work at hand. So there has to be a good amount of restraint there. And this is why we revise over and over again, right? And this is why it's beneficial to start with a very detailed outline. And huh. to spend, you know, I I often say if you, if you spend, um, you should spend at least as much time writing your outline as you do writing your paper, uh-huh. probably more time. Because that's really the hard work. That's the heavy lifting. If you have a great outline, your paper is going to write itself. Yes. And, and so I, 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 I can't recommend that strongly enough. I know there are people who love outlining, and there are people who resist it. I have resisted it. I had resisted it for many, many years, uh, and I, I, I started, you know, a number of years ago to outline and put the most effort possible into that, and it was just a uh, game changer. <laughs> so I recommend that.
1: I think if I could um, add something to that, as uh, we were just talking about, you know, the mystery Joe who who appears, and to amplify what Rachel was saying, that um, when we think about a, a research paper, the introduction and the discussion are partner pieces. No, you do not read them adjacently, or normally people don't, but as you're thinking of your introduction, and as Rachel said, maybe you have a really detailed kind of framework, you're actually setting up your discussion. And when you write your discussion, you may need to go back and change your intro so that people might be expecting a character called Joe. And maybe they were having lunch in a cafe and now suddenly they're you know, in a yacht off the coast of Capri or wherever it might be. But we don't want anything to come up in the discussion which could not in some way have been anticipated. Um, and another tip to share, you, you'd mentioned, Kim, about you know, redoing the intro and you tell everybody everything you've already told them before. Well, I would say you probably don't need to tell them everything you've told them before, because if we're writing a research paper, our literature review needs to be focused on that which is important for that particular paper. Now, that's different than actually writing a review article, which must be expansive, thorough. Um, And another tip that I think is, is really so helpful is to bear in mind that when we're writing something our intent should be to write for our primary audience, you know, subject specialists like us, and to anticipate that secondary audience. Individuals perhaps who use a different technique, a different cohort of patients who might be interested. And to attend to the needs of that secondary audience, we do have to simplify our introduction a little bit. That simplifying is not a bad thing. And one of the things that I would encourage anybody to do to really help themselves is to get their manuscripts locked up by a subject specialist who will pick up the tiny missing details and a non-specialist who will understand if the big picture is logical. And this can be enormously, enormously helpful mm. to get that broad perspective. And also to remember, just a point of humility here, that when we're looking at our own manuscripts, we tend to read what we hope we wrote, which is not what we necessarily wrote, but we read what we hope we wrote. So it's so important to have other people critique your work, whether it's colleagues, co-authors. I just had the preface of my book critiqued by a group of clinicians I teach, and they did a fabulous job. And then some institutions, Hopkins is one of them. You know, provides ed- editorial support, and sometimes people need that as well. So to get another set of eyes that are really critical
0: mm-hmm.
1: can absolutely help.
0: Thank you for these tips. I want to stay on stay on this tip theme of top three things or something that arrives as you've been teaching for so long, so many people, so many students, and I want to hear like specific tips. And one of them I hope you'll get to is back to what Rachel said about writing as a product of thinking. And again, now this is personalized. How do you work with students who maybe are thinking is so, I don't want to say disorganized and totally disrespect myself, um, <laughs> but I, I'm i very organized, but I have these ideas that are like huge and I am that kind of person who used to really in the discussion go off like the vision I'm here's what this paper shows and isn't it obvious Dr Poynton and Rachel that this is where the next step should be and and then this galaxy and that galaxy and then the next era of this and the epoch that and friends would be like what the heck where is this coming from slow down sister so what um other than that I mean the outline clearly I'm like oh humbling, the outline, the outline, the outline. But how do you organize thoughts? So if, you know, I guess that's part of the practice of being an academic and a scientist is learning to order your thoughts. And how how do you, how does one, how do you handle that Because you can't be a good writer if your thoughts are disorganized and chaotic and not focused and going down tangents and being like a puppy dog going, oh, that's an interesting trail. Oh, that's a good stick. Oh, look, a leaf. Oh, a squirrel. You have to, you know, how do you focus your students?
2: (laughs) Well, one way, I love that. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Chasing the stick, chasing up to the next shiny object. Um, So one way of doing it, you know, this is this might sound very elementary, very, very very simplistic, but I think it's really effective. Uh, I don't know how many uh, listeners might have organized their thoughts on index cards back in elementary school or middle school or high school. Um, and that is a great way of... Capturing all of these wonderful thoughts that you're having and all of these different topics and topics that may be useful in another paper down the track. References that you want to use, but, oh, doesn't really fit into this current manuscript. But you want to capture all of that. Just treat yourself to a really big box of index cards and start jotting that down. Then next step, you color code them. So and you can do this. I'm talking about physical index cards. You can also do this in a Word document by highlighting in different colors, these the, the different themes, organizing, but physically organizing, visually organizing your thoughts into, into themes, topics, subtopics. And this is a way that is so old school and, and, and uh, and so basic and yet really effective. I, and we, and Sarah and I t- tell our our students in our classes as well, don't be afraid of highlighting this text when you see this, this is rambling. This feels like it's I'm not really sure whether I've uh, given enough attention to topic A or if I've presented my topics in a consistent order throughout the sections of my manuscript, A, B, and C. So highlight A in yellow and B in green and C in blue, and it will soon become apparent to you where the balance is off because you can see it. It's no longer just black text on a white background, Hmm. but you can see it. And this is also so helpful when you're critiquing someone else's writing, um, to help them visualize what you're talking about. Do you see how this is inconsistent or imbalanced? Um, and 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 this comes out of left field, and I highlighted that in gray, because that really doesn't relate to these to these other things. Um, so yeah, visually, that, that's how I try to control
0: uh, a whole lot of thoughts coming. coming so, point. <laughs> I love the color coding, and I've done that in the past. And what What is so it's like you said, it's simple, but it's elegant. It's so beautiful. That way, if you at a glance, you could see, wow, there's an awful lot of green going on here. If I had four color themes, about four buckets or umbrellas or conceptual domains I was talking about, why is everything green? Mm -hmm. But sometimes, you (laughs) you know, you get so wedded to you think, oh, this is a brilliant sentence. Look at me. I'm writing up a storm here. This is beautiful. I love the way I said that. And then you have someone like, you know, Sarah or Rachel go, yeah, that's a green one. You need to get rid of that. You go, but it's so beautiful. It's a beautiful sentence. And then what I do, and I don't know what you think of this, is then I just take that poor guy and I cut him and then I paste him at the bottom of the manuscript under thing that miscellaneous musings or put it in a different document going, really great sentences that I hope to use somewhere else. <laughs> so it's not like he's he's not lost. Right. Forever, he's I'm just putting him somewhere else later. So that helps me like the hard part of like cutting, right? That's sometimes you feel so wedded to, oh, Sarah just took out that word. It's a beautiful word.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I would say if you know if you have crafted a beautiful sentence, give yourself some credit because readers will greatly enjoy it, and we find beautiful sentences very infrequently. But it's one of my joys when I do my editing work is when you come across a gorgeous sentence. I mean, you are so grateful. It just elevates your whole experience. Um, what, what I do sometimes if I am confronted with what appears to be a random stream of consciousness um, is to recognize that that's an important starting point. You know, we just have to have the neurons firing randomly to begin with, and that's okay because it's putting words on the page. Um I, I love the color coding. Rachel and I use this a lot in our teaching. Um, I am, If I had to pick one thing that, that I would recommend if people are just kind of not yet fully organized in their thoughts is subheadings. Write a subheading for every single paragraph. And, and if you don't know what the one theme is of that paragraph, then it needs a bit of work. And then whether you've got the index cards and I personally, um, I'm kind of an analog person. So yes, I do write with a fountain pen. I I use a computer too. Um, That you know, get your index cards, put them on the floor, rearrange them or cut and paste your document. But I think whether you're using the color coding system or, you know, subject headings, something to bring a visual element and some kind of summarizing of the different packages, because probably most of the useful information is there. However, having said that, when we critique a piece of text, um, we look at it in order. We look at content, then style, and then form. So, when we think about the content, two important questions. Is all the important information there? And we flip it around. Is then non-essential information which needs to be removed. Mm, mm. So sometimes it's not just a question of organizing it. It's also a question of deciding, do we have everything we need and do we have information we don't need? Mm. And then that helps to bring some system. Because I think if you are confronted, I think particularly with people that are working with inexperienced writers or even experienced writers that are just sort of gushing as opposed to organized. You have to have a system of organizing it. And then if you can pass this system or, or ideas you know, onto your mentees, hopefully then you're giving some sort of tools for some kind of sustainable changes. Because what we do see is that people's writing style is extremely predictive. So whatever you encounter in the intro is probably going to go through the rest of the paper. So if you're working with someone who's disorganized, I don't think it's necessary to try to organize all 30 pages.
0: Mm.
1: You've got chaos in the intro. It probably continues. So you could Uh use one of these tools, the color coding, the subject headings, both of it, you know, and look through it and give it back to the person and say, this is what I observed have them see what they can do with it and then see if they can amplify those improvements.
0: Gosh, you know, Sarah, that's so smart. And you're making me curious about, you know, a lot of uh, faculty, early career faculty, many struggle with, you know, the writer's block, how to even start. You, you know, I do the, the, did the WAGs, the writing accountability groups, and the three major barriers to writing are trouble getting started, I don't have time to write, and trouble finishing, well, the trouble getting started when you were saying, you know, the stream of consciousness, I can imagine that someone who has a writer's block, if they were um urged or invited to stream of conscious, get your thoughts on paper, that might be like step one. And then step mm-hmm. two, now that we have the thoughts, let's now color code. And so you could actually show them the process that you are helping them to organize those thoughts, that might be great, which then makes me think, gosh, is there some way that we could in the future, maybe someone's done this already, have some kind of a tool that would assess the writer's readiness to write so that you would know how you should start with that person. Because I'm thinking you might have a faculty member who would say like, okay, Rachel, I spent all weekend here's this 40-page document and just like Sarah said, Rachel opens it up and goes, "Oh my gosh. This introduction is cattywampus. This is just this is not going to be good." And now you give the feedback, but now you've there's a level of frustration and a feeling of like hopelessness. I just spent all weekend doing this and now it came back with 52 colors on it. Rather would be there be some utility and stepping the process back when you're teaching or working with someone who's like new to the whole game. Okay. I see that, you know, we need with you, Kim, we'll focus on say outlining with you, Sarah, we'll focus on storytelling with you, Rachel, we're going to focus on format or form. So, I mean, I'm wondering if that would be a value or what you think about that, an assessment up front to kind of, you know, tailor tailor the intervention, if you will, for unique learning styles or readiness or level of skill.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I've been teaching and and writing and doing freelance technical editing for a, for a long time, so I can look at a, a piece of text pretty quickly and get an assessment of of what's going on. So yes, I do find people's writing style to be um, pretty predictive. If somebody was looking for really detailed feedback, um, I would take maybe two pages. So let's assume 250 words a page, so maybe 500 words. Often I do the intro and do a really detailed critique. And I would use five colors to represent something Rachel and I share with our classes a lot, the five C's of good scholarly writing, which are just Five words all beginning with C, you know, consistency, clarity, conciseness, cohesion, conviction. Every good bit of scholarly writing must have all five of those qualities, no matter what it's about, whether it's a paper, review article, grant, doesn't matter. And I would go through with track changes and I would use five colors, one for each of those things, put them in the comment boxes. And then just as Rachel was describing, if you're looking at a piece of text for content, you see, oh, there's more green content than blue content. You can do it this way also and see um, you know, what are the main things your writer is struggling with. Mm. Um, and I think that's often quite quite helpful. Um, another thing, and, and I mean I struggle with this myself, we think when we're going to write something, we have to, you know, write the whole paper in a weekend.
3: Uh-huh. And I
1: think we set you know, we set ourselves up in a way just to get frustrated, you know, whereas I tend to think writing is anything at all that contributes in any way. So sometimes for me, writing might be a post-it note with an idea on it. It's something. And as you've helped us to to recognize, Kim, from the writing accountability groups, um, being accountable to another person is huge. Writing a little and often. You know, many of us wait for that perfect opportunity when the planets are in alignment, the house is clean, the bills are paid, everything's perfect, and then we're going to be inspired. But I don't know about anybody listening to us, but you know, I'm not sure that the planets ever perfectly align. But I still have to get my book done or my papers written. So to give ourselves, you know, permission that a little and often is okay. You don't have to wait for the perfect week mm. with absolutely nothing else in your schedule yeah. just chip away and just get a little bit done get feedback ask people for help mm.
3: yeah.
1: and so, also to really encourage people to read because mm. that's a huge predictor of somebody's um you know comfort level I
0: love it. Be- i'm going to repeat those c's what Consist- they read I want to repeat the C's: yeah. the consistency, clarity, concise, cohesion, and conviction. Thank you yes. for reminding us of those the yeah. five C's. Yeah. Rachel, what are what are your some some tips or top? Three, four, five, one, two things that you'd like <laughs> to share with the listeners.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I w- one thing that I'd like like listeners to take away um, who are who are you know so in some way engaged in in scholarly writing is to think of yourself as a professional nonfiction writer. Uh, and 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 obviously you have you wear many hats, you do many things, but to think of yourself when you read good nonfiction. What is that like? How does that make you feel? How do what do you take away from it? As humans, we tell stories. That's how we remember information. Um, and so, the more skilled nonfiction writing you can read, and even fiction uh, as well, um, the better. And if you're affiliated with an institution that has, you know, library holdings, you have access to all sorts of get get yourself the New Yorker or or the Economist or the Atlantic or whatever Vanity Fair, you know, and and find some well-written nonfiction. Um, and I think that that's, that's one tip I have just immerse yourself in that and enjoy it. And it doesn't need to be scholarly or, or medical, but it helps you, uh, it helps you recognize a clear voice and a, and a, and a, an accessible message, uh, and story. Um, that would be one, one thing. Another, um, little tip for some people who have a really difficult time with clarity, um, I recommend that after they've written written a, a section of their manuscript, maybe you know, maybe a couple of paragraphs, uh, that they they read it out loud into the voice memo feature on their phone and and then put that away for at least a day. and uh, then come back to that recording and listen to to it. We all hate hearing our voices, but uh. just listen, listen to it and and say, does that make does that make sense? Um because sometimes people can hear it when they can't see it on the page. Um, so that's a little, a little tip that we offer um, uh, our our learners. Um, and then another, another uh, little, these are, these are not in any particular order and they're not necessarily related. There's a bunch of freebies here at the end. Um, is, is uh, Titles. Now Sarah is the first person I've ever known who offers any uh, guidance and teaching on titles and titles, You know, they're the only thing everybody reads. Uh, if you know, and some people then go on to read the abstract, which is the next most important part of your paper. Uh, but the title is incredibly important. And, and so there are different styles of title. Uh, Your title can ask a question. It can, it can pose your research question in the title. Um, is X influenced by Y? You know, and that, that can be if the journal allows it, some don't allow that. Um, but if they do, that can be a great, uh, compelling, title format uh, some allow a statement of your main finding that has pros and cons you know um but you could try it and see how see how what you think of of that then there's the two part title where you you know you start with something more general in the beginning and then there's a colon and then you you have the more specific part at the end these are several styles of title i would suggest that you write a title, you know, various titles for your for your manuscript, um, and get feedback on them from from colleagues, from other people. See what they like. See what they what resonates with them. See what you know which one they pick. Well, which one do you like? Because really, there is just a lot of appeal factor here. You know, we have to convey key 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 topics, uh, key words in our titles, but um, but also the way it's structured can can be very off putting or or very compelling, um, and so you'll never know. If if you've picked sort of the more the the more popular title, unless you unless you do a little informal poll and uh, and see what's resonating with people,
0: I, I like the. I always remind myself to not be so wedded to my ideas. I mean, we always think our idea, or at least I always think, "Oh, this is great. This is perfectly really conveys everything. This is going to be awesome." And then someone will say, "Well, the title, maybe," <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, "Really?" But I love that title, and so taking a step back and like re- removing the emotion from some of these things. Yes, it's your baby, and you worked hard on it. And if you have a bunch of people who are saying, "Yeah, the title's not really doing it for me," maybe the title needs to be changed, and not be so you know stubbornly. Well, if they don't like the title, that's their problem. No, that's <laughs> if there's a consensus. We we need to learn to be humble and to take the advice of people who maybe, you know, have some wisdom that could help us. So I've learned a lot that way of again, taking those little sentences that I love or the paragraphs that I love or the little speeches and going off on a soapbox and putting them somewhere else um i've learned that that's that how it's you know why cut my nose off to spite my face if i'm going to be that stubborn it's not going to give me a publication and not going to get the word out really kim really you that wedded to, <laughs> to that nonsense true. <laughs> very true
2: so and well then yeah. one final thing because you did mention the um uh free freebie the gift the present um to listeners if you if you want yeah. it Um, So um, I've developed a clinical article template. Uh, So this is for any listeners who are writing clinical research articles. Uh, And this template offers you space to um, capture the essential elements of your manuscript. And this is a great tool to use if you are trying to get motivated to spend. Well, let's see, I have five minutes today to work on my manuscript Um, so you can choose an element in this template and just focus on that for a few minutes, a a reference that you want to cite in your final paper could capture that there, Um, or something about your secondary audience that you just want to jot down so that you can remember that later. Um, You know, it has lots of different sections and they will help ensure that your final product includes all of the pieces that should be included in that article. Um, And it will also allow you to start writing when you are ready to, you know, start writing with a capital W, um, without facing a blank Word document, which is so intimidating and unpleasant. Um, And this way, at least you'll have some prompts for your writing already in place and some thinking already accessible to you that you've done when you did have five minutes weeks ago on Thursday. Um, And so, you know, so this is something that um, I'd love to offer uh, your uh, our listeners um, and and give me feedback if it's if it works for you, if it's helpful. I'd love to hear hear that or if it needs to be uh, tweaked in any way It's everything is, uh, you know, evolving. So did you get
0: that a free article template for clinicians clinical writing? And you can get that by emailing Rachel Walden, who, by the way, was married four days ago. And so her email is much simpler. It's rbox, R-B-O-X-1, Rachel Box. It was R-B-O-X-1 at J-H-M-I dot E-D-U rbox1 at jhmi.edu so four four days married and she's recording a podcast this is dedication and then Dr. Sarah Poynton I don't I maybe I'll whisper this so it's not nobody knows about the secret but Dr. Poynton (laughs) is also uh, a fee-for-service she's helping our faculty members write their promotion letters I don't know if you want that out in the world. And if you didn't want that out the world, I'll make sure we, we edit that out. But Dr. Poynton is not only helps all faculty and all manuscripts and grant applications, but now is venturing into the world of helping faculty members tell the story of their life for promotion letters. Um, and you can reach Dr. Poynton at S Poynton. That's S P O Y N T O N at jhmi.edu. I'll repeat that, S-Poynton, S-P-O-Y-N-T-O-N at jhmi.edu. And both of their names, and their bios will be on the Faculty Factory website. And I think I will thank both uh, Dr. Poynton and Rachel Walden for being here, sharing all their wisdom, their passion. We are so fortunate to have you here at Hopkins. And thank you for sharing with the Faculty Factory communion, community. And Sarah, I think I'd love to leave the final parting words to you today.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, I'm reminded of a quote that one of my colleagues shared with me some time ago, which was, the facts are in the words you choose. So we have tremendous power in what we write and in the way that we write. And, you know, you're all doing what you're doing, whether it's your research, your clinical things, because it's something you love and it's something that you're passionate about and it's something that you're good at. And to be able to convey that in words, I mean, not only is it a great career accelerant, but you will put yourself in that small percentage of great authors and your readers will so appreciate it. You know, you think when you read a great paper and you'll go, wow, I just loved it. Why did you love it? Because, you know, the authors thought about you. um, And then to know that there are really uh, talented people out there who can provide great support. Um, So it's really been a pleasure to, to have a chance to speak with you all today. And I'm just so happy to have wonderful colleagues like Rachel and Kim. And we, as someone said, we make the magic with words happen. So happy writing, everybody. (laughs) Thank you. It's been lovely to be here.
0: See you next time on the Faculty Factory.
3: Hello, everybody. It's your podcast producer, Casey. And I just wanted to let you know that as of September 1st, 2023, this podcast has had nearly 76,000 total downloads and YouTube views from listeners in 84 different countries. On the Faculty Factory website, facultyfactory.org has drawn nearly 40,000 web visits from users in 122 different countries. It's truly an international platform, and we would love to invite you, no matter where you are, to be a guest on this show. Our host, Dr. Skrubsky, makes the experience very engaging, relaxing, and it's all recorded on Zoom, so no matter where you are, we would love to have you join her for an episode. As producer, I'll make any edits that you'd like, so there's no pressure to nail it on the first go or anything like that. We just want to hear from different faculty around the world so we can learn from each other. Reach out if you'd like to be a guest. You can contact us on facultyfactory.org contact, or you can email Dr. Skorupski directly at kskorupski at jhmi.edu.